Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. So to start off, I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about um, who you are and where you're from. Sure. My name is Michael Bain. I'm an attorney in Chicago currently. I grew up in Michigan, uh, went to Andrews University where I got my degree in microbiology and chemistry. And law school was what took me to Chicago in 2001. And I've been here ever since. Nice. And where are where am I talking to you right now? I'm at home. I'm in my basement. I am currently isolating myself from my family uh, until next Monday. Um, we're, we're playing it safe, but I want to make sure that I don't give my wife or my daughter or my mom, who's now here taking care of our daughter. Uh, I don't want to pass the coronavirus on to them. Yeah. And so maybe just going into your story, I was wondering if we could just kind of go back to the beginning and just hear your experience. And I believe back on March three, is that where the story starts? Uh, yeah, March 3rd, to the best that we've been able to determine was when I came into contact with someone who uh, later tested positive for for a COVID-19. You know, it's, it's not 100% certainty that, that that's how I got it, uh, but it seems to be uh, a, a pretty good, um, it, it seems like that's the most likely case. Yeah. Any idea how you came in contact with somebody who had the disease? Yeah, so I was, uh, I had gone to a reception desk and I had, uh, was talking to the person and I ran my hand, you know, I put my hands on the desk. I'm, I'm someone who's not particularly good at avoiding touching your face. And we found out that that person was furloughed from their job for testing positive two days later. So it was a, it was a, well, I mean, it was a really quick, interaction, you know, a few minutes and, and it you know, goes to show it, it doesn't take much to, to get it from one person to the other. Yeah. And so then fast forwarding, how much longer was it when you started to feel sick? So the first day I really thought that I was sick was, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the calendar here just to remember it was March 15th. So that was a Sunday I was trying to fall asleep and I was just experiencing horrible pain. Uh, sad to say this, but I had went to the gym earlier that day and I thought, well, maybe I hurt my back lifting or something like that. But as, as the hours passed by, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., the pain got worse and I started to realize that this wasn't, you know, like a, a muscle injury or anything but that I was running a fever and the, the pain was from the fever itself. I'd also started coughing a lot that night. And when I Googled um, coronavirus symptoms, the classic ones are fever and dry cough, which was exactly what I had. But I'm sure at the time it was before there were as many cases that had been diagnosed. And so it'd be easy to, you know, just think that you had the flu or something else like that. Yeah, I mean, coronavirus was at, at that point still. Um, it, it, it was it was more like 
a rumor than anything else. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we heard statistics, people had it, uh, but, but no one ever really knew, no one knew anyone that had it because, you know, on March 15th, I actually went back and looked at the numbers. There were about 3,600 confirmed COVID-19 cases in the U.S. and only 69 deaths. Uh, not to minimize, you know, dying is, is a thing, but, but there were the odds of any one person knowing anyone else who had tested positive or been affected by it were very low at the time. So yeah, a large part of me, you know, even though I knew that these were the symptoms, was like, ah, you know, what are the odds? I can't have it. Yeah. And so you started feeling a little bit sick. What did you do next? Well, the um, the hospital ended up being admitted to Rush University Medical Center, had a 24-hour coronavirus hotline. I called them and they recommended that I do a virtual uh, physician's visit, uh, which I did on Monday the 16th. I spoke with a, a physician's assistant, reviewed my symptoms, reviewed uh, my chances for exposure, and she suggested that now, she prescribed me some medicine to to help with the cough and help with the fever. And then she also suggested that uh, that I get tested, which she was going to put in a recommendation for. And at that point, how are you feeling? Well, worse. I mean, I was I was starting to run very high fevers and we're pushing up 102, 103, 104. And um, the cough was getting progressively worse. I went and I picked up my uh, prescriptions. And thankfully she had written something, what's it called? I don't remember the name of the drug right now, but she'd written, written a prescription for something that would relax your bronchial tubes and help with the cough. So that, that brought me at least uh, some temporary relief. Mm. And between that and the, the Tylenol, you know, I was able to, to mostly stay comfortable, but you know, in between doses of medication, the, the fevers would continue to, to increase and the coughing was getting worse. Yeah. And on, on that Monday, March 16, you wrote later that you had a, your fever got up to 104.4, I think. So yeah, it was pretty high. It was scary high. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't recall running a fever like that, you know, ever. I mean, not, not that I can remember. Um, and when it got that high, because I think it's like around 105 that you, you know, they say that even adults, you should go to a hospital. I begin to realize I am really sick. I don't know with what, but this is, you know, this is something that's really kicking my immune system into overdrive right now. And what, how was it doing the video appointment with the doctor? Did that work pretty well for your case? Yeah, it did. I mean, I think she understood that uh, you know, what my symptoms were and that because my wife worked at a hospital where there were recently confirmed cases of COVID-19, that there was a, a chance that I had been exposed. Uh, and, I, and I appreciated that. It's It was still at that point, and I believe it still is, hard to get a test. You had to you had to hit a, a number of criteria, as I understood it. Your fever had to be so high. Um, you had to have some sort of uh, um, chances to exposure, you know, recent travel was one of them or possible contact with, with someone who had it, which again, at the time there weren't a, a lot of people that, that had had it, but because of my wife's job 
uh, you know, I was reasonably at risk. And so your fever spiked, but then that Monday night, did the fever get a little bit better? Well, I was, I was taking drugs for the fevers, you know, um, ibuprofen, which, uh, you, you know, later came out that you shouldn't take. And I, I did stop and Tylenol. And I, I think it was that night. I remember just waking up drenched in sweat and which was really gross, but I felt, I felt fine. Um, uh, you know, the muscle aches were gone. I, I felt pretty normal. I was still coughing a little bit, but you know, it, it was a, a very false sense of, Oh, I think this is over. It was a 24 hour bug or something. And, uh, you know, I went back to sleep thinking that, um, I was probably uh, not going to really need this test for the, for COVID-19. So that was Monday. Then Tuesday, the 17th, how did things go? Well, I was definitely sick. Uh, the fevers came back. Uh, the coughing was getting worse. And I had uh, my test scheduled for 1030 in the morning. My wife had gone to work and, you know, I couldn't. Uh, and we have a, a two and a half year old daughter and I couldn't take her to the to the test with me. So I put on a mask. Uh, we called our daycare and said, hey, you know, um, there's a chance I might be sick. I'm just going to drop my daughter off real quick. I'll be a mask in a mask. I don't want to go inside. And that's what we did. I, I dropped my daughter off at daycare, which, um, you know, as a lot of people have pointed out, and I put this in my post, is, you know, how, how could you do this? How could you expose all those people? And, you know, a large part of me, Still didn't think I had it. You know, the odds seemed to be really low. And on top of that, no, it was just the wrong decision. You know, everyone was talking about social distancing, but, uh, and I was one of those that was online telling people like, oh, hey, you know, you need to take this seriously. You should practice social distancing. But when I was put between a rock and a hard place, or at least so I felt I didn't have many choices, I took my kid to daycare and, you know, as we know, as I found out four days later, when I got my test results, I potentially exposed a bunch of, of, you know, uh, daycare workers and, and kids to the virus. Um, I, I put that in my, in my original post because I wanted people to recognize uh, someone not taking it seriously and to do better than I did. Yeah. And it also just illustrates, you know, the tough position that a lot of people are in are trying to find ways to take care of their family and continue their lives as best they can while trying to balance being as safe as possible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's scary right now. You know, we don't want to send our, our child to daycare and thankfully my mom has, um, has come to stay with us for a while so we can avoid doing that. You know, I, I am happy to report that as best we know, I, I didn't transmit the disease to anyone. No one got it there. Even more amazing, I was walking around asymptomatic for a good week at my job. It's in an open-air environment, and there's 100 people that work there. And no one from from my place of employment got it either. Uh, you know, my wife hasn't gotten it. Uh, my child hasn't gotten it. Uh, and we're hoping that that luck holds out. But it was still terrifying to know that 
you know, I was a person who was who had this virus all through my body and I was going out in public. You know, I had mentioned I'd went to the gym on Sunday. I clearly had it at that point, uh, as we found, you know, based on what happened later that evening. But I was going around and and, you know, being a fairly irresponsible person uh, just because I didn't want to believe I had it and I didn't know anyone else that had it. And at that point, how worried were you? Because you're you're someone who's generally been in good health, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a, a. I don't get sick very often. I don't miss miss time due to illness. Uh, I, I take reasonably good care of myself. <coughs> Excuse me. And um. And yeah, I, I you know I'm, I'm a pretty healthy person. I w- still wasn't that worried because, you know, I'm sure over the past few years, I've, I've had about the flu or something and you come out of it, you come out of it a day or so later, everything's back to normal. And when you were, when I was reading about the people that were at risk uh, for, you know, serious cases of, of coronavirus, it wasn't me. I'm not over 65. I don't have any uh, immunocompromising conditions. I didn't have any of the pre-existing conditions that you you would want to fear uh, if you got this virus. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't worried. I just wasn't feeling well. Yeah. And later that day on Tuesday, the 17th, where you, did you go in and take a test at the hospital? I did. And it was a very unusual experience. You know, they, they sent someone out to your car to signal for you to go in and uh, immediately you're instructed to put your hands in your pockets, not to take them out, not to touch anything. You're escorted into uh, what's a, a locked building at that point because they don't want anyone going in there and potentially contaminating the place. And uh, I, the, the doctor that, that did the test, you know, I, I encounter her and she's dressed head to toe in, in, in what looks like a hazmat suit at, at this point, uh, which is completely understandable because if your entire job that day is testing people for, for coronavirus, yeah, you're probably going to be exposed and you're going to want to be protected. Uh, they took me back into room, said, stand there, don't sit down. Uh, doctor said she was going to put uh, you know, a probe way up in my nose. And she told me, you're going to want to grab my arm and pull it out. Please don't do that. And, <laughs> um, you know, and so I, I tilted my head back and, uh, you know, they, they did the swab. I've heard stories from people as to how bad it was. It was not as bad as I was expecting, thankfully, because there's this this apprehension and anxiety that that starts to take effect when they when they tell you how far up and up into your nose they're about to stick this thing. Uh, but uh, you know, she did the swab, and then um, they made sure the hallway was clear before I walked out. The door was open for me, and then it was locked behind me, and I I drove home. So I'll. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, and then that was it. And so, yeah, what what happened next after you went home? Well, I continued to get to get worse and to feel bad uh, over the next several days. You know, uh, see, so it was Tuesday. I got I had the test on Wednesday. I had um, downloaded. I'd previously downloaded the hospital's app. 
which is an amazing app. My chart, I think a lot of places use it. And all of a sudden, this alert buzzes in on my phone that your test results are ready. And I was thinking, well, wow, that's that's really fast. And so I, I logged in and checked them, and it says, you don't have the flu. I didn't realize they were going to test me for the flu. I mean, it, it made sense. And at that point, so one of my coworkers had tested positive for influenza A the week before, and she had been at work. And up until that point, I was thinking, yeah, this is probably the flu because I know I've been around someone with the flu. And when the results came in that I, in fact, did not have the flu, I, yeah, I was running out of things that could be. Um, colds are not this bad, and I didn't have cold symptoms. You know, I didn't have congestion, uh, runny nose. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't coughing anything up. And it, it had, uh, outside of something that I just didn't you know, know was a possibility at the time, my results had been narrowed down basically to, to having a, a COVID-19 infection. So after that flu test came back negative, were you a little more concerned because it ruled out the, the less severe option? It, it did. And that was the point where I was starting to think, maybe I do have this. And like I said, there, there wasn't, I couldn't think of anything else it was. And every time I Google symptoms, the, the, your classic uh, coronavirus symptoms were fever, non-productive cough. And what did I have? I had a fever and a non-productive cough and, and that was it. So um, it started to be more of an expectation that I probably had it. And every day, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to, to get worse. Um, and my wife's continuing to worry more. I'm waiting for these test results to come in. So I, so I know what's, what, you know, do I have this thing? By Saturday, it was getting to the point where I was having a lot of trouble breathing because I was coughing so much. So I'd, I'd try to bring air in. It's immediately forced back out of my lungs. The fevers are not abating at all. They're continuing to, to run really high and having to be managed with Tylenol. Uh, and I started to just, you know, I, I'm not going to say I felt like I was going to die, but I was worried that I might because I was continuing to get worse. And I told my wife, I said, yeah, I think it's time that I, I go to the hospital. And uh, I drove myself to the emergency room at that point. Yeah. Can I read just a little section of something you wrote um, for on Facebook from Thursday? Yeah. Um, you said, I feel broken. I don't know how much fight is left in me. It's like I've gone 10 rounds with a heavyweight and he's throwing all the punches. I can't defend anymore. Can't do anything to lessen the blows. All I can do is get hit and hope that my natural vitality outlasts his ability to keep swinging. Yeah, I, you know, I remembered when I was in college, I went snowboarding and I wasn't good at it at all. It was my first time. <laughs> And I just was hitting the ground repeatedly. Uh, and you know, when you first, you first start hitting ground, you can kind of brace yourself and you absorb the, the blows. But after, after so long, there's nothing. It's just you, you hit the ground and you hit it hard and it hurts. And I felt like there was just nothing I could actively do to fight what was going on in my body anymore. Uh, the coughing was just going to come and I was just trying to live through it. The pain and the fevers just con continued to, to push higher and higher. 
And there was nothing I could do but just lay there and, and take it and, and just hope that it stopped because you can only take, you know, the, the drugs so often. And I'll be honest, I was taking them probably way more than you should be just to, just to try to find some sort of relief there. But, um, you know, it was, it was a, a loss of hope at that point and just, you know, there wasn't anything I could do other than the hope that I, I lived through it. Yeah. What was your family doing during this time when you were still at home? Well, they were, they were not, I was in a guest room at that point. They were staying away from me. Our, our conversations were limited to, you know, yelling throughout the house or FaceTime. Uh, my daughter, she's only two and a half, thankfully didn't really know what was going on. Uh, but my wife was continuing to check in and she was urging me to go to the hospital a lot sooner than I actually did. Um, you know, I, it's one of those, I, I always feel like I'm going to get better. I'm not going to get sick and going to the hospital is just going to be a waste of money and time. And, you know, you don't want to get stuck with these medical bills. Emergency room visits are expensive. And so, you know, that was why I continued to put it off for, for me to actually break down and say, I got to go to the hospital. Um, I, I, it's, it's because I just wasn't in a good place. Yeah. So on Friday, you said that you started hearing a little crackling while you were breathing and started feeling some tingling around your eyes and lips. Yeah, the crackling we later learned was from pneumonia, um, which wasn't the most shocking thing. That seems to be one of the one of the um, things that you get when you have COVID-19. But the. The tingling, you know, around my eyes, lips, also my extremities, my hands in particular, I knew that was because um, I wasn't getting as much oxygen uh, as I normally was. And, um, you know, that, that shortage was leading to that sensation. I th- assumed it was from just the constant coughing. You know, I'm not, my lungs not having an, op- an opportunity to, to absorb the, the air that it needed. Um, but you know, as, as pneumonia will do, my lung function was also starting to be reduced, which was a contributing factor. I I loved how on Facebook you wrote about you were on Friday, you were so sick, but you also were still having to keep yourself busy and you, uh, got in arguments with people on social media who were calling <laughs> it the Chinese virus. Yeah, it's sad how much of that is out there. And, you know, some people actually express their reasoning in a, in a fairly, you know, justifiable manner. But there was just a lot of dumb stuff out there. And, you know, I'm, I'm, my mom is Korean. I identify as an Asian American. And, and trying to tell people, hey, this is dangerous for pe- this, this wording is dangerous for people uh, with my cultural and ethnic background. And then having my opinions, uh, having people tell me that my opinion doesn't matter, you know, even though it doesn't affect them and, and they're never going to know what it's like to experience any, any type of, uh, you know, un- unfortunately racism, um, due to that. It got pretty frustrating and I realized that I was just wasting my time too. People are, people, we're, we're in the day and age where people don't change their minds. They just become further entrenched the more that they argue about something. But yeah, it was very frustrating. Still is. 
Yeah. And so then was it the next day on Saturday when you finally felt that you had to go to the hospital? Yeah. Uh, Saturday went to the, the emergency room and, um, I hadn't gotten my results yet. Uh, when I checked in, I told them what my symptoms are. They sent, they sent you to this new triage, uh, place that they had created. Uh, it was really kind of, if you've ever watched, I'm trying to think of what movie is comparable to, but where they're like housing prisoners in these tents and warehouses and, and it just felt, it was, it was weird. There's, um, all these, chairs that were set up and each one of them had a, um, uh, a laminated sheet on it that said clean. If the, if no one had sat in it since it had been sanitized and, you know, they were all spaced far away. There was some tents set up for examinations. There was a check-in desk that you would go to that was roped off. You could, you couldn't get closer than like eight feet to it. And, um, so I, I walk into this room and there's a woman there in a wheelchair who does not look good at all. Like I was, I, I don't know what happened to her, but I hope she's okay because she just, she didn't look good. And, you know, this is the, the place where the people who might have COVID are going. And then there was a person there who had his dog who I, you know, I, I don't believe that this person was. I, I think he may have had some mental illness, but who was trying to check himself in with his dog, uh, which was just kind of, kind of amusing to see, but kind of frustrating <laughs> as well. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I'm, I, I sat down and I waited and all of a sudden my phone rings and, you know, normally I don't pick up numbers that I don't recognize, but I had been picking up every number because I'm hoping to get my test results and, uh, sure enough, uh, someone on the phone, the, the, the lady on the phone was like, Hey, we just wanted you to know that, uh, you have tested positive for COVID-19. And I'm like, yeah, that's the least surprising news in the world <laughs> at this point. I'm also literally checking myself into the hospital right now. Um, but yeah, that was, that was my confirmation. Uh, at which point you know, I notified my family and, and, uh, my boss and some of my friends that, I was in the hospital uh, because I had coronavirus. Yeah, and I guess that also highlights just how helpful it would be to have tests that can be done sooner and to get tests right away because you could have known for all those days for sure that you had it. Yeah, there's a big difference in knowing that you have it and suspecting you might have it when it comes to your behavior. You know, I, I think that now that that's probably changed because when I when I first got into the uh, the day I checked in the hospital, there was something like 25,000 confirmed cases in the U.S. And, you know, now we're, I haven't looked at the latest numbers, but I know we're over 300,000. And, um, I, you know, you see and you hear about how much more seriously people are taking it. We crossed 10,000 deaths today. That's not a, a small number. And we're averaging over a thousand deaths per day of, for the past five or six days. Um, yeah, but but at the time, and even now, it'd be great the the faster testing. I know would have modified my behavior quite a bit. And so, yeah, how was it like once you got checked into the hospital there? Well, I spent about five hours in the emergency room. Uh, you know, they they 
did a battery test, blood draws, uh, I think your analysis, x-rays, and that's how they they found out that I did have pneumonia in both of my lungs. Uh, but a lot of it was just waiting for, uh, you know, they knew at that point they were going to be admitting me and it was, it was getting a room ready and, you know, hospitals, they, they've got their procedures and it does take time. So thankfully I had, you know, thankfully all of us at this point have our, our cell phones. So I was able to, to, you know, entertain myself for those hours. The gentleman with the dog was placed in a room somewhat near me. Uh, because I remember hearing him for a good hour or so shout at the staff that they needed to come take care of him and they needed to come feed him and they needed to, um, he was just berating them constantly for not paying attention to him. So I don't, I don't know if he had the virus or not, but, uh, hopefully he ended up getting the help that he needed. And when you were admitted finally, what was the the ward like that you were in or sort of the area you were well, in the hospital? Sure. So I was taken to the, uh, uh, they had opened up a COVID positive floor where at that time, I think 14 people who had tested positive were on. I never saw any other patients. You know, they wheeled, they wheeled me into my room and um, doctors came in. And one of the things that I noticed right away was, you know, people come in and they're in masks and, and goggles. And I actually don't know what any of my nurses or doctors look like because the entire time I was there, I never saw them without the masks on. But in addition to that, when they'd come in, they'd put on a, a disposable gown uh, before entering the room to come talk to you. And, you know, whether they were in, they're usually only in there for a matter of minutes. And when they were exiting the room, they would take off the gown, throw it away, wash their hands and, and you know, do whatever else it was to, to try to remove any trace of the virus. But this was every time someone come, came in. And so numerous to, you know, all these gowns are being thrown away constantly throughout the day because they're taking these precautions to to keep from getting the virus, but also from taking it around the hospital or, or taking it home. And one of the things that was different, I believe, about this hospital visit versus most is they wouldn't come in the room unless they absolutely had to. A lot of times when they were checking on you, they'd, they'd go outside, there was a phone right outside the room, and they would call you or they'd call you from their, their hospital-issued phones um, to see if you're doing all right. Because if you were and they didn't have to come in, you know, well, number one, that's that's a lot less resources that were just thrown in the trash for for minutes of use. But secondly, you're also minimizing the amount of time that you're exposing them to the virus. Yeah. I mean, they know you've got it. You know, you've got it. And, you know, um, if you can avoid coming in contact with it, it's definitely the way to go. For sure. Um, yeah. And once you were admitted, what sort of treatment were they doing for you? Well, it was, it was essentially comfort treatment at first uh, because there isn't really a whole lot you can do. So keeping the fevers under control with Tylenol, they gave me uh, something called Hycodin, which is a, a syrup containing an opioid. And I didn't know that, but off-brand use of opioids is, has uh, historically been to control coughing. And uh, that's what they were giving me. So every six hours, 
uh, you know, nurse would come in, give me a Tylenol, give me the uh, Hycodin, and that would usually keep me comfortable for about four of those hours. And then it was two hours of increasing misery as the fevers continued to push and the pain would start. And then the coughing was, was getting significantly worse at that point. Um, I have a needle phobia. I've passed out tons of times getting shot. Um, like I always warn them now and I'll still hit the floor on occasion. But one of the worst parts of, at least mentally for me, at first, being in the hospital was they did multiple blood draws every day and I had to get a shot of heparin in the stomach, which is something they give you for to keep your blood from clotting um, because, you know, you're just laying in bed all day. So when I got out of the hospital, the back of my hands were because that's where they do the blood draws from were just purple. Yeah, and and green and and I've still got the bruising there and uh, just tons of bruises all over my stomach from getting those shots every day too. That's just sounds like its own type of torture for you being there in the hospital. Yeah, it wasn't fun. Yeah, definitely wasn't fun. Was it on that first day on Saturday when you were admitted that you were able to post on Facebook about what had been happening to you? Yeah, it was. I had been uh, on the 15th when I suspected I might have COVID. I tried to find something uh, to describe what the symptoms were like. I found one article on the New York Post where this nurse from Colorado said, yes, I had the sniffles. And then I had horrible body pain. And then I was in the hospital. You know, and it, it wasn't a really long article, but uh, and I mean, and when I say in the hospital, she was in the hospital with with Corona. Uh, it wasn't long, but that was really the most useful thing that I had found at the time. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I have this or not, but if I do, uh, documenting this could be helpful to someone in the future. And so I started daily when I was, you know, uh, drugged up and was feeling okay. I would write down the things that were happening during the day and try to keep track of my symptoms and experience. Um, and it was really one of those just in case things. If I didn't have COVID, none of this was going to be, you know, none of this was ever going to yeah. go out there. Um, so the day I went to the hospital and most of what I posted on Saturday had already been written, uh, but that was also the longest time period of non-writing that I had done because I didn't get to um, document what happened on the, on Saturday the 21st until I was in my hospital room itself, which was after four hours of being in the ER. But, uh, you know, I, I thankfully there was, um, I, I was able to remember the highlights pretty well, uh, wrote down what I could and then posted it that night. Yeah, and not only was it a story that probably not that not a lot of people have been able to hear in such detail, but you're also a great writer and um, oh, brutally well, honest you. and also hilarious. And so, yeah, I think the whole the whole post is just such a great piece of snapshot in time from there. And obviously, as we'll talk about a little bit later, it connected with a lot of people. But I'm sure at that point you weren't thinking about 
how many people might see your post eventually. No, I, I you know, in hindsight, had it uh, had I suspected what was about to happen, I probably would have written it a little bit different. But um, no, it was just it was it wasn't a public post. This was to my friends because I had friends out there that were still oh, it's just a baby cold. I'm not scared of a baby cold or I'm, I'm going to do what I want to. This is all the media hyping something up. And I thought, hey, if you know me and you have any type of respect for me at all, maybe you'll take this seriously when you see that not only do I have it, but I'm in the hospital and these symptoms are, are you know, uncomfortable to say the least. And so that was my goal in putting it out there was just, Hey, friends that aren't that, that don't believe this is a real thing. This is a real thing. Practice social distancing. Yeah, if I can just read a little bit from how you sure. closed out your post, you said, "People have died. People will die. It might be people you love. Please stay inside. This is horrible, brutal, devastating, and it feels I might be cashing my chips in. Protect the people you care about as best you can." So that's you know some good strong language to tell people, you know, take this seriously. Yeah, it was, I mean, if someone tells you they think they might die, I I hope that raises the stakes a little bit, Uh, you know, because at that point, uh, that that was why I checked myself in the hospital. It wasn't necessarily that I believed, oh, I'm absolutely going to die. But it, based on how I felt, I understood why COVID-19 was killing people and why all these warnings were going out about staying safe. Yeah. And so, you know, how, how, how did your condition go for the first few days you were in the hospital? Yeah, it got worse. The doctors told me that it was going to get worse. They figured I was about halfway through it. Um, and you know, but there was no reason to believe that I wasn't going to get better at some point. And, you know, they were right. I continued to get uh, sicker, the fevers. I, I got to the point where I could really tell tell you what my fever was just based on how I felt um, between meds. Uh, but, but it continued to get worse. And on Tuesday, you know, my wife and I had had a conversation. She's like, don't buzz the nurses a lot. They hate that. You'll get that reputation. And it's, you know, <laughs> I, it's not like I wanted, I didn't want them coming in anyway because of, of what I had. But Tuesday night, um, you know, I, I had the nurses worked 12 hour shifts. So I'd have one nurse from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And then I'd have another nurse covering the other half of the day. And it was right before seven. I felt horrible. My nurse's name was Frank. And I, I, um, I buzzed him and I said, Frank, I don't think I'm going to make it. You know, I'm, I'm constantly, I'm hooked up to this oxygen monitor and I'm seeing my levels get, get lower and lower. And, you know, a healthy person my age, I believe you're usually somewhere between 96 to 99% saturation. And, and every time I'd um, gone to the doctor for normal checkups in the past, you know, I'm at 98, 99 and I'm, I'm dropping down to 92, 90, high 80s. And I just feel, you know, I felt awful. Um, and when I said, I don't know if I'm going to make it, it was really the first, the first time mentally where I started to consider the fact that, you know, I might not come out of this. 
Um, and so the nurse came in, the doctor came in, they offered my comfort meds. And I believe that was the time where they also put me on supplemental oxygen uh, because my levels were continuing to, to get lower and lower. We did another chest x-ray and they showed me a comparative one from when the, from the time I had checked in and, you know, I had bilateral pneumonia to that point. And it was just shocking to see how much the pneumonia had spread. And, you know, it, it looks like this lattice work of glass. It's not like bacterial pneumonia, but everywhere that was, was where my lungs weren't functioning properly, which, you know, totally understood why my oxygen levels were continuing to drop because this was just starting to spread further and further. And it was, it was a really terrifying thing to see, uh, visually, um, like, Oh, those are the parts of my lungs that aren't working. That's awful. Yeah. So which day was that again, that they put you on the supplemental oxygen? I believe it was Tuesday. Uh, it was the day that I, cause I, I remember Tuesday was the day where I was just like, okay, I, I, I don't know how this is all going to end, but I'm, I'm worried it's going to end the wrong way. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Tuesday. I was also, um, on the, uh, was it hydrochloroquine? I, th- I think that's what it is. I know Plaquenil is the brand name and, uh, the, the Zithromycin, uh, at that point as well, which, uh, they said that they were giving it to patients, but they weren't giving it to the ones that they, they were giving it to like the patients on oxygen that were yeah. in, in the worst condition at that point. And do you remember, um, were you on two liters of oxygen? Do you remember how much you were on at that I point? I think that's, yeah, that's what they started me out with. And, you know, it was, um, my numbers went up, uh, right away. So you know, it, it was anytime I had to use the restroom where, and there was a couple of times where it was like, yeah, I want to go take a shower. Um, you know, I'd take the oxygen off and it was just, it was interesting to see, you know, I'd be at like 96, and all of a sudden, 94, 93, 92, just, just watching it drop when I, when I, uh, take that out. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew it was making a difference and I was, I was happy to have it at that point. And yeah, I'm not a doctor, but I do have a background, um, as an EMT and oh, okay. just, um, yeah, always talk about when patients talk about the sense of impending doom or feeling like, you know, just the sense that your body, that you're really sick. That's something when medical professionals really take it seriously. And so hearing you talk about, you know, you felt like you maybe could die, you know, that's a real indicator that things were not good for you at that point. Yeah, it was, it was really something that made me face my own mortality, not just in that moment, but that's lingered so much since I've gotten out of the hospital. Like, yeah, I'm probably going to die someday. Uh, it's a pretty sobering thought and not one I'm real thrilled to be having right now. For sure. And so, yeah, you were on the supplemental oxygen and then there was a point when things got worse. Wasn't, wasn't there? Yeah, I was, um, I was texting with a work colleague cause I was, I mean, there's not a whole lot to do in the hospital. And I was, I was trying to stay in touch with work and, and as best I could. And, um, the mouse to my laptop fell onto the floor 
So I got out of bed, went down to get it, and all of a sudden my oxygen levels plummeted into the into what if I'm remembering right. I mean, it was in the 80s, like mid to low 80s, and uh, I felt like I had no air. You know, I mean, I'm still breathing, but it was there's there's no air coming in. And as, as far as like physical feelings go, that's the scariest one I've ever had. Just not being able to do anything to fix that problem. I buzzed, I, I hit the buzzer and it took me like three or four attempts of trying to say I can't breathe before I could get the words out there. And the response was amazingly fast. And um, there was, you know, suddenly at least it was seven or eight. I remember counting seven and it might've been eight. I was, I was kind of out of it at that point. People in my room doing all sorts of, you know, assessments and, and trying to make sure that, you know, that they're, they're going to keep me in the land of the living. Uh, and just, I don't know who these people were because they weren't the normal people I had encountered, you know, my, my nurses and doctors, uh, but they were in there fast and, um, you know, just, just trying to keep me alive. <laughs> One of the, you know, I, I said before, I'm afraid of needles, well, I didn't know there was such a thing as an arterial blood draw, which is something they mm. do to measure the the gases in your blood. And uh, but they had to do two of them, and I my wrist still hurts from where they stuck that needle, and it was just this horrifying. You know, when someone tells you you can't move, and then they inflict this excruciating pain on you. I mean, it was just like yeah. I don't, I don't know if this is worse than not being able to breathe at this point, because this is just like awful. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, they, it's, it's what they had to do, uh, I guess to, to properly assess me, but they upped my oxygen to, they, they switched out the tubing to put in this high, was it high capacity tubes? Cause they, they put me on eight liters of oxygen at oh, that wow. point. And, the doctor who was in there uh, decided I was going to go to the ICU. And that's where we had like this horrible conversation because the doctor says, you know, well, we're going to take you to the ICU. If you don't get better and your oxygen levels don't improve, a ventilator is the next step. And a ventilator, um, you know, my wife had described it before because she works with intubated uh, people a lot. But just putting the tube down your, you know, down your throat and your lungs and the, or into your airways and the potential for damage to your teeth or damage to your vocal cords is, is always there. But even worse than that, they said they were going to have to put me in a medically induced coma. When you tell someone who already is worried they're going to die, that they're going to put you in a coma, my first thought is immediately, oh no, what if the last thing I remember is being put under? And, and I never come out of it because I, I passed during this coma. So, um, you know, it's, it was pretty traumatic. They're taking me to the ICU. I'm thinking, oh man, please get better. Please get better. I do not want to be intubated and I not, do not want to go into a coma. And, um, you know, they, they wheel me through the hospital. Once again, I don't see a single patient on my floor. And, uh, then I was put in the ICU on, is that Friday? Sorry, I'm, I'm mixing up my day, days here. I think that was on Friday, mm -hmm. Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, one of those days where then I was I was taken to the ICU. 
Yeah. And I think something that's been a little lost in our national conversation during this crisis has been we've talked a lot about ventilators and the need for ventilators, which is true. But also, if you get to the point of needing a ventilator, it's a kind of a last resort. And it's, you know, when you literally need a machine to breathe for you. And so, um, yeah, I think sometimes people don't think about just the sort of invasiveness of that and it means being sedated. It means, you know, your mouth being opened up and a tube being put down into your trachea and a machine breathing for you. And so you can be really seriously sick even before you get to that point of needing a ventilator. Well, yeah. And I, and I think the fact that we're, we're don't have enough ventilators illustrates how serious so many people's conditions are. I mean, like you said, it is the last resort. And you know, I was reading the other day that you know, they may have to start potentially triaging people uh, for ventilators, like trying to decide, OK, well, there's X number of people that that need it, but we only have this many. So how are we going to start prioritizing uh, you know, who gets it and who doesn't? And, and that's that's just such a, uh, a devastating thing to have to do because you're essentially, you know, are we picking lives here? Um, I, you know, it's, it's the amount of cases, the amount of deaths and everything that's happened since I went, the, the numbers that have gone up since I went to the hospital are just, you know, um, uh, I, I, I keep track of them right now a lot more than I used to. And just seeing that death toll climb is, is so sad. And, you know, I don't know what the other side of this is going to look like, but, uh, it's it's scary to think of what it could be when we when you know all this ends. Yeah, and so after you went to the ICU, you talked about just the experience of being there was quite a bit different than being where you were in the hospital before. It, it was. It was very it's very loud all night. Um, like it, it just sounded like a party, and I know that's not what was happening. Uh, you know, people people were needing urgent care. And so there's just a lot of chaos there, but I didn't sleep really well. I was, um, I was wired up to every type of monitor I could possibly think of, which, which then created a new problem for me because I couldn't get up to use the restroom. And so they give you this thing to, to go in and, you know, you're just, you're putting it off cause you don't want to, don't want to be lying in your bed, um, urinating. And finally I remember having to, to just, I, I couldn't put it off any longer. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. And there's constantly people walking <laughs> by your door and there's this window. And at some point you just got to suck it up and be like, you know what? I don't care who sees me. There's, there's just nothing I can do to stop this. Um, and so, you know, not, not like a serious medical concern there, but just one of the one of the more anxiety driving things that was happening to me at that point was just like, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get up to use the bathroom because I'm, I'm, I've, I've got all this oxygen going into me. I've got the EKG going, I'm on an IV. Um, you know, they've, they've got my oxygen levels being measured. I'm hooked up to a, a, a blood pressure cuff, which is going off every 30 minutes. You know, there's, there's no way. I can get out of this bed to do anything uh, unless someone unties me from all these things. Yeah, there is no shame or modesty in a hospital. No, you, it's not a luxury you can afford at that point. <laughs> and yeah, so once you were in the ICU, um, how did your condition go for the next several days? 
Well, it was interesting. I was only in there for a day and it was right at that time that my fever stopped. Um, so my fever stopped. My oxygen didn't, levels stayed you know, right around where they were. They weren't dropping anymore. And, um, you know, the next thing I heard was, all right, well, it looks like you're, you're, you can probably be moved back to your own floor. And, uh, which I was so thankful for because, um, you know, I was going to, I knew I was going to be able to sleep better and I probably wasn't going to be wired up to all these things anymore. I could use the, the bathroom and shower as I, as I wanted to. And you know, sure enough, uh, the next day, uh, they, they prepared a new room for me back on, on 13 where I'd originally been placed. And, uh, you know, I was back there and uh, with my old nurses and doctors. Yeah. Did it feel good to be back to, where you originally were? It, it did. It was, um, like I said, it was a lot more peaceful. But the great thing about being in a new room, too, was after I had posted about my condition, I started getting tons of random phone calls. I don't know how anyone got my room number, but I, I got calls from media. I got calls from complete strangers asking questions. You know, they're concerned about their symptoms. Uh, you know, people called to... to wish me the best and, you know, tell me they're praying for me and hoping that I got better. And it was, you know, it was, some of the calls were nice, some were annoying, but they would come at all hours too. Hmm. Uh, you know, often when I was sleeping. So I'm in a new room. I don't know who got my old room, but I, I hope that they, they were not inundated with these like random <laughs> phone calls while they were trying to, trying to recover. But yeah, one of the benefits of, of, you know, leaving and then coming back was that. So at what point during all this did you start to realize that the post that you originally just made to your friends on Facebook had started to be seen by a really wide range of people? So, you know, the next day um, I hit like 10,000 shares and I was just blown away at that point uh, that, you know, 10,000 shares. I mean, I, 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 the most I'd ever had something shared before, as far as I could remember, was like five times. You know, it's not, I'm not a, not a, I'm not a huge, I'm not an influencer, as they, as they call it on social media. <laughs> and one of my friends texts me, he's like, is the media started calling yet? And I'm like, no, why is the media not going to call me? This is, I mean, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's 10,000 people, but, you know, Facebook boasts like, like a billion users or something like that. This is a, a drop in the bucket. But it continued to, over the next couple of days, it's just, you know, more and more shares and more and more people following me. And I'm getting hundreds of friend requests a day. And, and my inbox is just, you know, filled with way more messages than I can than answer. Not, not, you know, not just from friends, but mostly from people that I'd, I'd never encountered in my life. And last I checked... You know, uh, there was there was over 125,000 reactions to the post and like over 325,000 shares, which is is mind blowing to me uh, that that, you know, that many people have read this complete strangers experience. Um, I, you know, I, I'm still kind of hard to comprehend that, that that has happened. Yeah, that. It's just must have been such a bizarre feeling to be so sick, but at the same time 
have all these people trying to talk to you? And how did you try to respond, balance that? Well, at first I, I tried to respond to everything. I mean, um, a lot of people were concerned and, you know, they had questions about their symptoms and yeah, I'm not going to make any diagnoses, but I, and I said, well, Hey, this is, this is what happened to me. Uh, a lot of people were just wishing me the best, which I was thankful for. And I try to respond and, um, and, you know, I got a lot of medical advice too. Some of it was just awful. I know people mean well, but, but some of it was like, there is no one should do this. I don't, I don't know where you got this from. Uh, but you know, this was, this was still pretty early on in my, in my stakes. I'd posted the day I got there and you know, it was the next day where, where it was starting to gain some traction. And as I, as I continued to get sicker and my oxygen started getting lower, my energy level kept getting lower and lower too. And I, I, you know, the, the flood of messages was coming in and I'm like, I'm just like, even if I wanted to keep up with all of this and, and you know, a part of me wanted to, but I, I can't physically do it right now. Um, yeah, I need to, I need to sleep a lot. And, um, it was just, it was just kind of mentally exhausting to have to, to keep dealing with. Yeah. And did you end up doing some interviews from the hospital there? <laughs> Yeah, I did, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of Chicago stuff, um, ABC, NBC, CBS, you know, Fox reached out to me and, um, yeah, I responded and hear from them again. NPR, uh, did a, did a kind of an interesting piece where they had me read uh, a lot of what I wrote and they turned it into, you know, they added, uh, some, some sound and music and turned into this like pretty cool thing. Um, but, uh, you know, even, even you know, that, like I said, I told my friend, I was like, media is not going to contact me. Uh, but, but they did. And I found out that, you know, my, my post was, you know, it was in Europe and it was in Asia. And one of my friends reached out to me and said, Hey, I've seen your post in three different languages in my country. Um, you know, and I'm just, just floored at all of this. And I, I was trying to figure out what it was that made this particular experience, you know, as, as many people point out, there was dual meaning at that point to, to going viral, but why, why had this happened? And, and I, I came to a couple of conclusions, you know, n number one, I mean, this, the, you know, coronavirus is everywhere. Our, our, our lives have changed so much because of what's going on. You know, people don't leave their houses anymore. So it's front and center of everything that we, everything that we are doing. Uh, but at that time, there wasn't really anything beyond statistics. It's like, oh, these, this many people caught it in this state, or there's been this many deaths. And you know, my story was really one of the first ones where someone had documented what it was like to deal with. And there was just a, a novelty to that that I think drove, drove all this this traffic and, and, and all these shares, you know, I believe that if you post my exact same thing, if I posted that a week or two later, none of this happens. You know, I mean, it, it, Corona is a lot more personal now than it was when I got into the hospital. Uh, a lot more people know, uh, have been directly affected or know someone who's been directly affected as the numbers continue to climb. So I, I think that, you know, Part of the reason this did go viral was 
I was just in the right, granted, horrible place at the right time. Um, you know, I, I caught it early and there was a lot of interest because of that. I think that's definitely true. And also, I think the amount of detail that you put in your post was just something that people hadn't seen very much either from other stories. Yeah, I think people, like I said, I, I did it because I couldn't find that detail. And I, I thought it might be useful. Granted, I never thought it would be useful to the people that ended up reading it because it was just for my friends. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right in that. Just people don't know what it's like. We were hearing statistics. We were hearing that it killed you. But, you know, to talk to no one had really spoken to anyone that had it. And all we knew is it was bad. We didn't know how. And after you left the ICU, how many more days were you in the hospital? <sighs> See, if I left the ICU on Friday, was it Friday, I think, uh, I, I got out Monday. I was discharged Monday evening. So, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and most of Monday. And yeah, so did your, was your condition kind of steadily getting better then after you, you know, crossed that line in the ICU? Yeah, it was better. You know, I don't, I don't think I was actually sick anymore with, with uh, COVID. Uh, you know, I wasn't running the fevers, which, which told me that the virus was essentially beaten. But what I was struggling with was my oxygen levels were so low. And, you know, they showed me another picture of my lungs and, um, yeah, that was horrifying. Uh, not just seeing how bad they were, but then I start to, started to worry. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty active person. I've run five marathons. I do, I do, you know, uh, try to keep up some level of uh, aerobic activity. Uh, you know, I'm worrying, okay, well, is this going to permanently damage my lungs? Am I going to get back to normal? And what was keeping me at the hospital at that point was, can I get enough air in my system to be safely discharged? You know, or, or do I, do I need to stay in the hospital until my lungs get better and I can be taken off supplemental oxygen? Yeah. And that's one thing for some of the other reporting for Spectrum magazine I've been doing. I've been talking to experts in the disease and that the COVID-19 is kind of a one-two punch. The first punch is from the actual virus. And then the second is as, our immune systems fight the virus um, can be sometimes an overreaction of the immune system and then also pneumonia that can develop. And so it seems like you kind of experienced that where you had the virus and then you had to deal with the aftermath of the virus. Yeah. The doctors have told me it's going to be a few weeks until things get back to normal. I'm optimistic. It's actually not going to take that long. I feel, you know, over the last three days, I felt more like myself than, uh, I, I have in a long time. You know, if we had done this on, on, uh, Monday or Tuesday when I was released, I'd be coughing up a storm still, but I'm, you know, for the most part, barely coughing anymore. And I'm not taking the meds to stop it either. But yeah, you know, they say it'll be a few weeks. Uh, hopefully I'll make a full recovery, uh, because I, I said I'm an active person and I'd like to resume that, uh, part of my life as soon as I can. Yeah, well, that's great to hear that you're feeling a lot better anyway. And how is your family doing with you still um, trying to recover? Well, you know, they, I mean, they miss me uh, because I'm, I'm down in our basement and they're in the rest of our house. My wife is, she went back to work today and she works at a hospital and she is 
really scared of, of both getting it or bringing it home to our daughter. Um, and you know, if you're a medical professional, I don't know how you're not scared and, uh, you know, hats off to them for, for continuing to do their jobs, knowing what they're going to encounter every day. You know, it's one of, I've, I've used the word a number of times, uh, calling them heroes, but I had, Nurses and doctors come into my room every day. I had Corona. They knew what I had. They still came in there. They still tried to take care of me. They still tried to keep me comfortable, uh, knowing, you know, that this kills people and that you're, you're walking into a room where that, that virus is. Uh, you know, my wife's going to be, she's going to be at the hospital. Um, she works at the hospital where I was and, you know, they've got plenty of confirmed cases and, you know, there's, there's a high chance that she's going to, encounter it, but she and, and so many other medical uh, professionals like her, uh, you know, they're, they're still trying to take care of us. And, and yeah, I, I believe they're all heroes and I hope that everyone appreciates what they're doing and the potential sacrifice that they're making. Yeah. What would you say to anybody out there who hasn't yet personally been affected by this or had someone close to them affected by it yet? Well, I hope you're not would be the first thing. Uh, you know, I, I was, I, as I continue to, um, have people reach out to me on social media, I'm getting so many more of the stories of, you know, my relative is in the hospital, my, my relatives on a ventilator, uh, someone I know has died. Like we're, we're, I'm literally getting the stories of people passing now, which is just, it's unbelievably sad. So, you know, the first thing would be, I hope you don't have to experience this. Uh, but the second would be, you know, I, I think I'm an example of why you need to take social distancing seriously. You know, I, I got it from someone who didn't feel sick at the time, but not only that, I went around asymptomatic to my job out in public while I had this virus. And that's such a dangerous thing to do. You may not feel sick and, and Corona is a really weird illness. Uh, a lot of people don't have symptoms. A lot of people don't have, or their cases are mild. And then some of us are just, you know, hit horribly and we're put in the hospital. And then uh, ultimately, unfortunately, some, some don't make it, but you know, you, everyone out there has the potential to transmit this virus unknowingly, maybe never even knowing that you had it. So, you know, we, our, our medical resources are being strained. When I got into the hospital, there was 14 people on my floor. When I exited, there was 30 and there were starting talk of potentially doubling up people in rooms. That's where we're at. We need to flatten the curve. We need to take care of our medical professionals and we need to take care of each other. So if you haven't been affected by it, that's amazing. Let's try to keep it that way. For sure. And yeah, that's one of the things from the uh, medical professionals, researchers I've talked to in my reporting is that this disease, it's new and it's like you said, it's, it's a strange disease and unpredictable and the ways it manifests are still being learned and figured out. And so that the social distancing and just minimizing exposure in any possible way becomes so important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we don't know what the world is going to be like when we come out of this. Um, and uh, there's there's an optimistic view of it, and then there's a, a, a very pessimistic one. But 
and we do know that we can take measures uh, to prevent a worst case scenario. And, uh, you know, hopefully that's, that's what more and more people are doing as, as experiences, you know, go public. And as, as we start to realize the real cost in human life, this is taking. Yeah. And after your experience, do you have any wisdom or thoughts about, you know, people trying to find the balance between being concerned, having a healthy level of being frightened by this versus panicking. And then, you know, after going through a real near-death experience, you know, yourself just trying to, you know, get life back on track. Do you have any, you know, advice to people out there? Well, I think one of the nice things about my experience is that it, it's it's had a happy ending. You know, I'm going to get to see my family again. So I I, I hope that uh, people don't think this is the end of the world and and that you know it's it's doom and gloom because it 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 doesn't have to be that. You know, obviously there's things we can do to help. Um, but you know, as as I've said a bunch of times. I was an example of someone who even, you know, tried to preach taking it seriously, but wasn't doing the things that I should have been doing, at least to the extent that I should have been doing them, you know, and I, and I hope that that, you know, my failures serve as a lesson that, um, even those of us who, who think we're healthier, don't believe we can get it can. And if we, all acts like we have it and stay inside and, and practice proper social distancing and, you know, follow the guidelines that are set and you know, we can get through this together. And, uh, and I hope that that's, that's what our country, uh, and, and, you know, frankly, everyone around the world, but I, I hope we continue to, uh, become more aware of that and, and continue to practice, uh, being safe. Yeah. Well, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me and, tell your whole story in so much detail, even though it's probably not the most fun thing to relive all the time, but I really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, well, it's been my pleasure. You know, I'd say the whole point in me posting what I posted was, was to try to raise some awareness. So, you know, if, if my experience does that, um, yeah, I don't mind taking the time at all. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive.